Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining episode 13 of The Green Life. What two weeks we had. Last week we had here Dr. T. Colin Campbell on the show and this week another veteran in health, Dr. Caldwell Elsestein. Dr. Elsestein received his BA from Yale University and his MD from Western Reserve University. In 1956, he also received a gold star as part of the U.S. rowing team at the Olympic Games and that is quite an achievement. He was trained as a surgeon at the Cleveland Clinic and at St. George's Hospital in London. In 1968, as an army surgeon in Vietnam, was awarded a bronze star. So when I say that he was a veteran, I actually really mean it literally here. His CV is packed, full of experiences, contributions, awards, so he really knows what he's talking about. In 1995, he published his benchmark long-term nutritional research Stopping and Reversing Heart Disease in Severely Ill Patients. The same study was updated at 12 years and then again renewed beyond 20 years for its last book, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease, making it one of the longest studies of this kind. That is quite an achievement that we can look at because this is not just a doctor saying that he cured people, this is a doctor showing that he did. His programs are still going on, accessible online at the moment, where you can sign up and learn everything he has to share about how to reverse and keep heart disease away. This is such an asset for us all because this disease is rippling our entire community and we therefore want to get healthy and this is a way to do it. So without further ado, welcome Dr. Elselstein. Hello Dr. Elselstein, thank you for joining us on the Green Life podcast today. What an honor to have you here. How are you? Thank you, Chantal. I'm, I'm delighted to be with you. Me too. We had a bit of a rocky start with technology, but I'm happy we managed now. It's so wonderful that you had the patience. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. So a lot of people know you for your wonderful work in cardiovascular health, but let's just give them a little introduction to you. And I'd like you also to talk about your achievement as a gold medalist, because that is something that cannot go unnoticed. So give us a little background of where you come from and how you became a doctor. I'm sorry, how did I become a doctor? Yeah, why you became a doctor, how you got into onto this path. Well, there was a, my father was a physician, but uh, I wasn't really quite sure that I wanted to go into medicine until uh, about my second or third year on working road construction. Uh, I was offered the job of being the foreman on the road construction job. And I thought, thought to myself, no, I, I really think that my first choice would be medicine. And why don't I do this? If I, I'll try to see if I can get into medical school. If I can't, I can always fall back into road construction. <laughs> but, but if I get into medical school, maybe that'll tear it. So that's not very glamorous, uh, I'm afraid. But it was, uh, I was very curious also especially during my time when I was rowing, uh, that uh, I got very interested in how the human body works, how it respond, responds and so forth. So mm. that, was, that was the background. Amazing. And uh, I guess, actually touching on that point, I guess you saw performan performance athletes really being fit and uh, performing really well, obviously, on the Olympic, on the Olympic team. And then did you notice uh, what the push for nutrition was at the time? Did you ever go back and think, actually, we were told to eat in a certain way that is obviously probably more aligned to a Western or American diet than a obviously plant-based diet? Did you ever think about it and go back in, into that kind of connection? Well, I think at that point, uh, all athletes were eating in a way that today would be looked on askance mm. with great concern because uh, the, the diet that is so heavy in cheese and eggs and meat uh, is, is hardly a diet that an athlete would eat today. Yeah, so very high in pro animal protein, really. Right. Yeah, and it's, it's fascinating how this has changed. I, I think obviously the more people are more aware of how they should eat for performance, but also for health. And that um, the protein uh, myth about having this complete protein from animals has been a little bit 
the, the mystified with uh, information and people like yourself and also well, your I son, think, yeah. really? No, yeah, I think that's pretty well passe now. Everybody, the athletes, even most professional athletes are trying to plant-based. Why? Because they have greater stamina and mm. quicker recovery time. Yeah, absolutely. It's true. Um, I myself find that my recovery time when I when I exercise is way better, and uh, I used to be sore for days after a workout. So now that's not happening anymore. So I'm happy that I can vouch for that. And I'm not even performing as like an athlete. Um, what did you ever notice? What happened to athletes when they stopped, however, competing? Because I guess they were really healthy and fit, well fit while they were performing at the time. But then what happened after? You know what? Uh, some athletes will continue recognizing and, and using a, a more modest approach can reasonably maintain their, their level of fitness and health, but uh, all too many let it go completely. And uh, then they begin to gain weight. They become hypertensive. Some of them get diabetes. It's uh, not a very pretty picture. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, so, okay, well, that was great. I wanted to touch on that because I want to get into a place where um, we can discuss how people, even when we're younger, we obviously think uh, we're invincible and we can eat in many ways and get away with it. But later in life, we kind of pay the consequences. So the bill comes for not treating our body right. And then here we have diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And obviously your, speci your speciality is cardiovascular health. What I'm interested in is um, kind of looking at where do you think it starts so where we really need to go back into, you know, looking at our diets from which age? Does it start in childhood? Does it start later in, the, in, in our teenage years, young adulthood? Where do you think we really need to start paying attention? Well, we have uh, four children and we have 10 grandchildren. Congrats. They are all 100% plant-based, whole food plant-based nutrition since they were in childhood, yeah. And you see them being up Well, that's not quite true with all of ours because our children were about of a late teenage when we uh, decided to make the transition. When to me, it became so apparent that the reason <clears throat> that there were multiple cultures on the planet Earth who back 100 years ago and even today really cardiovascular disease is virtually non-existent in those cultures. Mm. And the common denominator is they're consuming whole food plant-based nutrition. Now, as far as uh, uh, what many people, of course, uh, don't recognize that, well, let's just cite a study that uh, I like to quote about the pathobiologic determinants of atherosclerosis in the young. This is a study in 1999, looking at young women and young men between the ages of 17 and 34 who have died of accidents, homicides, and suicides, and at autopsy, early coronary artery disease is ubiquitous. Everybody, not enough for their cardiac events yet. They don't feel anything yet, mm. but they keep eating the same way. And now, by the beginning in our late 40s, in this country, we now begin to see this tsunami of cardiovascular disease because of the fact that we've started, started creating this disease, uh, even in childhood. Now you might say, well, what, what is the area where all experts would agree? Where this disease has its inception, its onset, its beginning. And that occurs when we progressively injure the life jacket and the guardian of our blood vessels, which happens to be that delicate innermost lining called the endothelium. And it is the endothelium that manufactures a truly magic molecule of gas called nitric oxide. Mm. And it is nitric oxide that is responsible for the salvation, preservation, and protection of all our blood vessels because of the remarkable functions that nitric oxide has. For example, nitric oxide will keep all the cellular elements within our bloodstream flowing smoothly like Teflon rather than Velcro. It keeps things from getting sticky. Number two, 
nitric oxide is the strongest blood vessel dilator in the body. When you climb stairs, the arteries to your heart, the arteries to your legs, they widen, they dilate, that's nitric oxide. Number three, nitric oxide will protect the wall of the artery from becoming thickened, stiff, or inflamed, protect us from getting high blood pressure, hypertension. Number four is the absolute key. A safe and normal amount of nitric oxide will protect us all from ever developing any blockages or plaques. So literally, everybody on the planet Earth, whether they're from London, Berlin, Chicago, New York, or Barcelona, if they have cardiovascular disease, it is because by now in the previous decades, they have so sufficiently trashed, injured, compromised, and turned their endothelial system into an absolute train wreck. If they no longer have enough nitric oxide to protect themselves, from making blockages and plaque. But the good news is this. This is not a malignancy. This is a completely benign foodborne illness. Yeah. And once you can get patients to understand that never, never, ever again are they to pass through their lips a single morsel that is going to further destroy their endothelial production of nitric oxide because then the endothelial production of nitric oxide recovers and we make enough nitric oxide so we can halt disease progression. And often we see striking examples of disease reversal. So if somebody were not quite informed about, you know, what nitric oxide is and how, you know, how it really works, what kind of food, they would ask, what kind of food really impairs it? What kind of food damages it? Um, and uh, if we had so, to give them a list... What, yeah. Because saying, you know, animal products is very broad, but they might not, you know, if people are not, are not educated, they might not know what that even means. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about what are the foods that destroy and injure your endothelium. Yeah. Number one, any drop of oil, olive oil, corn oil, soybean oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, coconut oil, palm oil, oil in a cracker, oil in a chip, oil in a piece of bread, oil in a salad dressing. Oil is a killer. Oil will injure your endothelial cells, as does anything with a mother or a face. Meat, fish, chicken, fowl, turkey, and eggs. Also, anything that is dairy, milk, cream, butter, cheese, ice cream, and yogurt. Also, we want to avoid sugary drinks, Diet Coke, Pepsi, and Coke. We want to eliminate Sugary foods such as cakes, pies, cookies, stevia, agave, excesses of maple syrup, molasses, and honey. Okay. And uh, I don't like peanuts, peanut butter, nut butters, cashew sauce, avocado, and lastly, coffee with caffeine. Decaf, yes, but coffee with caffeine injures endothelial cells. That's so interesting because I just uh, I was listening to a podcast by Simon Hale, and they were talking about how. Um, some research shows that caffeine is very good for cardiovascular health. And um, it's a paradox that um, I, mean, I, I heard before that it's not. Um, but then, you know, they were talking about how this research shows that it is. And um, so it's, uh, do, why do you think that we have such a conflicting information, even in the science? I don't think they know the science because I'm, I'm talking now about two studies, one Greek, one Italian. Mm. And the Italian study... They took healthy young subjects, divided them in two, half drank the coffee with caffeine, the other drank the coffee that was decaf. After they drank it, they did the brachial artery tourniquet test, which measures the diameter of your brachial artery at your elbow. And uh, then they switched groups. The group that previously was having decaf was now having coffee with caffeine. It was always the group drinking coffee with caffeine that in this study compromised the production of their endothelial cell, so nitric oxide. Wow. Okay. That, so, and you, you know what you have to do? There are so many studies out there to make sense of it. See if they've done this. See if they have taken a group of patients who are seriously ill with cardiovascular disease and see if their, their disease, excuse me, see if their program is halting and arresting and reversing their disease. 
That's why we will, uh, we will actually, uh, we'll put our, our, our program uh, against any other planet on the earth. Because the reason that we have success where others fail is because nobody else is as mean as I am. <laughs> You're not mean. Because <laughs> I hate failure in my patients. I want, I want them to understand all the details so that we can absolutely stop their disease. Because this is, what are, think about it. What an embarrassment it is for the United States and Europe, the way that we've treated heart disease. We have known, all those doctors in Europe, all the doctors in the U.S. have known that heart disease in rural Okinawa, rural China, Central Africa, the Papua Highlands, the Tarahumara Indians in Northern Mexico, no heart disease. Why? Because they're all getting stents and bypasses and drugs? No. Because that way, hey, what are the, it is so embarrassing that in Europe and in this country, what, what do we treat with? We give people pills that have nothing to do with the causation of their illness, or we give them stents or bypasses, none of which have anything to do with the causation of the illness. This is sadly a a broad uh, approach of the medical and why industry. Why do you think that is? Why, why do you think that is? Well, first well, of all, there's financial interest by the pharmaceutical yeah, companies. Yeah, it's funny. It's yeah. funny. <laughs> so, yeah, but I, remember, I remember asking a cardiologist once, several years ago, I said, why, uh, why are you reticent to send me some patients where we can actually end their disease with nutrition? He said, said simple. Do you know what my bill charges were last year? I said, no. He said over $5 million. Wow. So, you know, pretty temptation. Yeah, it's sad, that, sadly. And, and I guess this trickles down to the education system because when people study nutrition to be, uh, sorry, medicine to become doctors, their, their knowledge on nutrition is non-existent. They don't really learn anything about nutrition. And if they did, uh, what they do is very basic and it doesn't highlight the importance of a plant-based diet. They always focus on uh, the very traditional approach, which is protein, carbohydrates, and fats, and uh, what they do, how many calories they have, and uh, what if you have to tweak a little bit your diet if you have you know, diabetes or uh, heart disease, but in a way that really doesn't, that, you know, doesn't, doesn't give any uh, relief. For example, people that have, have heart disease might have high blood pressure, so the doctor would be like, just lower your sodium, and that's it. And they go home with nothing but this information, and then they start buying low salt sodium, low sodium salt, and that's it. That's all they change, right? Um, I've seen this many times. Well, I've told, I've, we've, told, we've talked about the food that, that injured mm -hmm. the endothelium. We ought to uh, talk about what are the foods that we want people to eat. Yeah. Let's talk about solution. All these marvelous whole grains, whether that's brown rice, vulgar wheat, barley, rye, uh, it may be buckwheat, farro, quinoa, and uh, eat the whole grains, or as a cereal, bread, pasta, rolls, and bagels, 101 different types of legumes, lentils, and beans, all these marvelous red, yellow, and green leafy vegetables, white potatoes, sweet potatoes, and, uh, and some fruit. And none of those foods are going to injure your endothelial cells. Yeah. No, absolutely. And they are, I mean, they're amazing. Once you know how to, you know, prepare them and eat them. I must say, I only stopped eating oil um, last August. Um, and I've noticed, because my background is Italian, that um, I had a, an attachment to olive oil, you know, to... It was emotional. You know, I saw my grandmother oh, cooking yeah, with yeah, it. Italy isn't the only country, and there's Spain and... Uh... And Portugal, where I am, same. I mean, they bathe their food in olive oil. Um, but what they, I'm saying is my emotional they, attachment to it. So they soak the bread in it. Yes, not just that. <laughs> I, I remember my... There, uh, is, there is heart disease in Spain. There is heart disease plenty. in Portugal. Plenty. And this is why sometimes when we talk about the Mediterranean diet and how healthy it is, it confuses me because I'm, I don't understand what, um, you know, what demographic are we looking at? Because um, I still have family in Italy and they all have heart disease, all of them. 
and they eat a traditional Italian yeah. diet. You have to tell them that oil is a killer. I wrote, a, I wrote an editorial uh, in 2019 in the uh, International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention. And the title of it was, Is Oil Healthy? And I reviewed the animal studies and the human studies showing how oil injures the endothelial cells. So can I ask you why some uh, cardiovascular doctors, um, some that you actually know and have been on panels with, would promote uh, olive oil? And they say, okay, I understand that. Um because they don't know the literature and they've never ever, they've rarely have they treated their patients with whole food plant-based nutrition. It's not, it's not common to find a physician who is treating their patients with whole food plant-based nutrition because several reasons. One, they say the patients won't follow the diet, right? And two, if, if, you, if you're going to ever have a patient make a successful lifestyle change, that is not gonna work if you give them 10 or 15 minutes in the office without the spouse or the partner, mm. doesn't work. But if you show the patient respect, by that I mean give them time, give them time. And by that I mean, right now, for example, our program uh, we have, I counsel usually no more than 18 or 20 patients on that, on a single day. And it's our intensive seminar, five, five and a half hours. But before then, 10 days before then, my secretary will give me the phone numbers of all the patients who are coming. And I personally call each one of them individually so that I can get my arms around their story. And at the same time, provide them with an opportunity to ask questions of me. That way we're running about 89.3, almost 90% adherence. Mm. And that's the whole key if you're gonna be successful in this. And then in the five and a half hours and during the phone call, I explained to them the science that I've just showed or shared with you briefly with your audience here, namely that the only reason they have cardiovascular disease is because they have progressively destroyed and injured their endothelial production of nitric oxide. Yeah, it's really, it sounds very simple in a way. Um, and maybe that's why we tend to overcomplicate and people are like, no, that's not, doesn't make sense. It does make sense. Um, it is simple and it works. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if somebody now comes to you and they have um, heart disease, which is most of your patients, clearly, um, what is the best food? Now we talked about the food that doesn't, hinder the endoth endothelial, but what is the one that really can work magic on, uh, on a damaged um, cardiovascular system? Well, I don't think it's so much a food that you eat that does that as it is the food that you avoid because nature in your body has, has created this wonderful lining, this endothelial lining. And there's not, um, but there are, you know, the foods that really I, I, I would have to put at the top of the list would be the green leafy vegetables because that's the uh, uh, that's really sort of been discovered within the last uh, 20, 20 years or so that when you are eating green leafy vegetables, there are several ways that we'd like to enhance the production of nitric oxide. Do you want me to go into that detail? Yes, please. I would love that. Well, for instance, about a decade ago, I modified and changed our program because of two things. One, we learned that the endothelial production of nitric oxide is age dependent. You never heard of a boy or girl at age eight having a heart attack, right? No, they have nitric oxide coming out of their ears. Yeah. By the time they're age 50, beautifully healthy, they now have 50% of the nitric oxide they had when they were age 25. By the time you're 80, you've lost 70%. Mm. So here's what we do. The second thing that was important a decade ago was to adapt the, the, the knowledge that there is an alternate pathway by which mankind can make additional nitric oxide. So here we go. I need them to chew a green leafy vegetable six times a day that is roughly the size of half of your fist 
after it has first been steamed in water five and a half to six minutes, so it's now nice and tender, then you must anoint it with several drops of a delightful balsamic or rice vinegar. Why? Because research has shown us that the acetic acid from those vinegars can restore the nitric oxide synthase enzyme, which is contained within the endothelial cell and responsible for making nitric oxide. So you're gonna chew this alongside your breakfast cereal, again, as a mid morning snack, again, with your lunch and sandwich, that's three, mid afternoon, four, dinner time, five, and of course, I adore it when you have that evening snack of arugula or kale. Now, the second benefit from chewing the green leafy vegetable, it restores the capacity of your bone marrow to make the endothelial progenitor cell. What do they do? The endothelial progenitor cells can restore your bone marrow's capacity uh, to replace our senescent, injured, worn out endothelial cells. Now, the third and most important benefit from chewing the green leafy vegetable, when you are chewing a green leafy vegetable, you are chewing a green nitrate. As you chew the green nitrate, it is now going to mix with the facultative anaerobic bacteria that reside in the crypts and grooves of your tongue. Those bacteria are going to mix with and reduce the nitrate to a nitrite. Once you swallow the nitrite, it is now your own gastric acid that is going to further reduce the nitrite to more nitric oxide. So think about it. What you're doing literally with minimal expense, no hideous side effects, all day long from dawn to dusk, morning to night, you are absolutely restoring. You are restoring nitric oxide the very molecule, the deficiency of which has given you this disease in the first place. Now, there are some caveats to this. Toothpaste with fluoride, public drinking water with fluoride or mouthwash will injure the beneficial bacteria in your mouth. And I do not like antacids because antacids will reduce your gastric acidity and you will be unable to reduce the nitrite to more nitric oxide. Now the top six would be kale, Swiss chard, spinach, arugula, beet greens, and beets. Now, if you want the whole list, it is. Bok choy, Swiss chard, kale, collards, collard green, beet greens, mustard green, turnip greens, napa cabbage, buffalo, broccoli, cauliflower, cilantro, parsley, spinach, and arugula. The only reason I do that is to show you how it is that whole food plant-based nutrition helps your memory. Absolutely. We should put this on auto, um, you know, on a, um, like on a music, on a, on a CD. <laughs> so it's such a nice beat. <laughs> well done. That's amazing. I can't even say that. I'm going to work on that. Um, that's beautiful. So can, can I ask you why uh, does, does apple cider vinegar, like raw apple cider vinegar, would have the same effect at all as um, a balsamic vinegar and a rice vinegar, or they yeah, have different the compounds? The only reason I stick with rice vinegar and balsamic, that is where the research, research was done. Okay. Okay. Whether the others work, I do not know. But I have not seen the research. Okay. You know what's interesting about the decrease of um, certain elements in our body as we age and how many, many studies show that even um, hydrochloric acid in our digestive system decreases as we get older. So our amount of protein, for example, especially when people eat animal protein, is so not beneficial for uh, us as we age. And when I say age, it's anything after 25. So it's quite amazing that these are not put together, even at the basics, you know, even if you're not a cardiovascular disease expert or you're not a doctor that is, you know, you could be a GP, like a family doctor, even that kind of um, information should just trigger that questioning, are we meant to eat animal products at all? Um, and especially um, after a certain age. And I, um, I feel that this is really interesting because now we see a lot of people that are put on, um, uh, you know, anti-acidic drugs, uh, like you just said, not to have that if you want your, um, your health to improve. Uh, but it's, um, it's amazing how they put them on these drugs because they say that they have more acid in their stomach, but in fact, they have less. And so this is why people have actually more acid reflux. 
um, is because they don't have enough hydrochloric acid to digest certain things, namely animal products. So it's fascinating to me that we are at the stage where we have all this research and we still don't connect the dots. Um, you know, it's, um, it should be really a flag to say maybe our approach to health needs to change and plants are the way, you know? No question. <laughs> Thank you. A man of few words. <laughs> so can you tell me a little bit more about your program, if somebody wanted to do it, especially what's happening now uh, with COVID, obviously everything was standstill. Did you resume in person or are you still doing online courses? Well, I used to do it in person, but now since this, we've been with the pandemic, everything is done virtual. But we have many patients from overseas. They simply call my secretary. They indicate that they want to uh, sign up on the program and uh, we do it uh, virtually, Zoom, because we, we treat patients in the United States, Mexico, Canada, overseas. But it's, uh, it's exactly what I just went through with you earlier. Uh, they, these patients are going to learn all about how they have created their disease and precisely how we are going to empower them as the locus of control to halt and reverse their disease. Yeah. Can, yeah, that's perfect. Uh, so they don't have, you don't have to, anybody can just reach out and basically sign up. Is that what you're saying? Anytime. Yeah, I don't, but I, I don't think, I don't, I, the one person we probably wouldn't be able to help would be somebody who's a smoker because if they're going to smoke, our program doesn't work. Nobody's program works. But if they've stopped smoking beforehand and they're willing to uh, come on board, that works fine. Actually, it's, it's right. Like um, when you were talking about the, the bacteria in our mouth, I, I read a paper um, about the importance of our microbiome in our mouth because we're always talking about microbiome in our guts, but in the mouth is just as important, which is where our, digestive, our digestion starts. And uh, you're right. Um, there's this correlation between smoking and, um, and killing the healthy bacteria in our mouth. Um, and uh, many doctors don't talk about it either. So never mind the other effects on the cardiovascular health that the cigarettes have. But this is really important. And you're right, they wouldn't work if they smoke because they're starting with uh, killing the very elements of life that would, you know, reverse the heart disease in their mouth, right? Right. Um, can, I, can we just go quickly to inflammation? Um, a lot of people use this word all the time. We talk about anti-inflammatory diets or inflammation. And... A lot of people don't even know what that means. If you had to explain it in layman terms, how would you explain inflammation? Well, the best way to probably make people grasp and understand it is if they've ever had a uh, <clears throat> cut on their finger, a cut on their finger, that initiates, and you can see it with your finger, that it initiates immediately this enormous influx of highly specialized uh, immune, immune cells that rush to this area because of the signal that the skin has been violated, it's been cut. And so you find that even no matter how careful you are, there'll be some swelling with the finger. Now, if it happens to get infected, the army, the army of cells that is trying to protect you is even more ferocious and you'll notice all this swelling. But as nature begins to get on top of this, guess what happens to the swelling? It begins to re recede and go away. Now, whether that happens in your finger from a cut, whether it happens from an abscessed tooth, whether it happens from a bladder infection, or an infection of your toe with athlete's foot, uh, or it could be infection of gallstones. In other words, there's, there's this sort of the general, and it could be the inflammation may come from the inside of your arteries with their disease, with all the inflammation that goes with the laying down of blockages and plaque. So it's really almost pretty uh, universal and so many other conditions that we have, even uh, uh, like uh, uh, Crohn's disease, 
ulcerative colitis, rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah, not, not good, but inflammation is essential to help us try to cure these things, especially if you uh, address the causation. And that's my, uh, my whole uh, criticism of the cardiovascular profession, profession today is that uh, they do not treat the causation of the illness. Mm. And uh, I wrote a I wrote a paper in let's see in 2014 that was published in the Journal of Family Practice, and that was 198 patients who had been involved in our in our study, and we followed them close to close to four years, and. It was interesting that 89.3% uh, followed the program as it should be. And there were 21, 21 out of the 198 that did not. The ones that followed the program, there was no uh, heart attack, stroke, or death. There was one patient in the program who totally misbehaved when he was in China, ate all the wrong foods, had a small stroke from which he recovered. But the 21 patients who didn't follow the program, 62% in that close to four year follow-up period had a cardiac event. Um, so it was really quite exciting for us to, to be able to, to prove, because even when you think about it, if that patient hadn't, hadn't misbehaved in China, our success rate over four years, unheard of, would have been 100%. Nobody would have believed us. So that's why I put him in that group. <laughs> <laughs> See? So I mean, that's amazing. So if you had to say that um, there was one thing that um, doctors, uh, especially heart doctors, had to learn now, immediately, urgently, what would that be? Well, they have to learn about nutrition because it's, listen, it, it's, the skies have opened up and have given the medical profession the strongest tool they've ever had in their toolbox, which is we're not talking just about heart disease. Mm. If we treat somebody with heart disease who has hypertension, it goes away. Diabetes, it goes away. Their risk for vascular dementia goes away. The risk for stroke goes away. The risk for ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, multiple sclerosis, allergies and asthma. When have we ever had anything that powerful before? But the doctors are never taught nutrition in medical school and, and none in their postgraduate training either. You just want to feed somebody enough to keep them alive. That food, that's food is it. No, no, there's much more in food than that. It's, just, it's where all this illness begins. Yeah, and I, I guess the problem is also talking about inflammation is that people are chronically inflamed. So the immune system can even use inflammation as a warning sign for repair. Uh, it's more is going to long-term obviously create problems if it's always, always there. It's just like our amount of stress. We, we have our stress is very important for us to be alert and from, you know, from, to, to get out of situations that are perilous, but then we are constantly under stress so that now our body doesn't know when, what to do when things happen because we are constantly in a, in a state of uh, alert and, um, I think society doesn't help that. I think we, we got some really ourselves in a bit of trouble here um, between, you know, obviously the, there are so many layers as to why this is happening. We have the um, corruption of the system, uh, policymakers, you know, uh, benefiting from the situation being what it is, pharmaceuticals having too much power, corporate having too much power, um, and, um, and things are just not demonstrated properly. And I have seen, sadly, even science being corrupted um, because you can take any angle and make it work for you if you pay for it. I, I've, I've noticed that we, when you do science, I think it needs to be real and you need to accept that sometimes we don't get what we expect out of it, right? The answer might be different to what we expect or want, but be honest about it and that's not happening all the time. And if you don't mind me um, like segueing into a conversation I was having with Dr. Colin, T. Colin Campbell last week, um, and you were involved, basically, we were talking about, um, we were talking a lot about policymaking and a lot about corruption, and we talked about a BBC documentary by Horizon that was made, and he mentioned that um, the doctor um, slash interviewer 
from the UK that went to interview also came to see you and uh, had a meal with you and that you had testimonies of your patients at that meeting that were not included in, uh, in the final cut of the documentary. Do you recall that episode? It's probably there somewhere, but I, I've had so many episodes. That... <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it was called the, the Dirty Truth of Clean Eating, something like that, by BBC in the, US, in the UK. Um, so, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, I remember. Oh, my. You know, oh, yes. No, no. I, oh, that was, that was terrible. No, I had all my patients. All, I had, when I say all, I mean, I had... Uh, I had four of my patients who came to be interviewed by him and he was trying to downplay plant-based nutrition. They had all been cured of their disease. They absolutely took into him and they just absolutely told him the, the, the way it was. He was saying, I said, well, isn't it horrible and terrible to eat that way? They said, you're crazy. We've, when you save, it's been saving our lives. What are you talking about? I mean, they just laid him out and let, you know, he was, he was very, very impolite, but they uh, they came through. Yeah, yeah, I, I heard that. Um, yeah, Dr. Campbell well, said. I, I, I apologize that for a moment I, I wasn't, I was trying to think of when I was in uh, in the UK or something, and I couldn't recall that. Uh, he was he was actually here in the States. He was there, yeah, he was there. Yeah, um, yeah I, I was, uh, so this came to my attention because um, a couple of months ago, um, I, I had COVID and um, I, I was just sick. I mean, you know, like the flu a little longer, but, um, and while I was in bed resting and recovering, I basically just watched documentaries. <laughs> and one of the things that I watched was that. And I remember watching it when in 2015 and um, I, it sounded strange. So I was really, I really wanted to talk about this to Dr. Campbell because I was like, you know, it felt like they were, he was not including all your answers and just editing the the interview in a way that would suit him and then he told me about the um the fact that they came to see you and they even had a meal with you and uh, your wife Anne cooked for them and uh for him and um and that he interviewed your patients and uh and then many of none of that made it into the documentary I, in fact I didn't even know they came to see you because it's not in there so um it just really uh, you know when you you start doing research about um health and you want to interview uh, amazing speakers, you, you, you see all these kind of dots coming together because I've uh, I picked up on a lot of um, agendas being pushed one way or another. And uh, this is why I always say, you know, science needs to be honest. And we have to also, um, a lot of people want to downplay by saying it's anecdotal if somebody feels better, but it's not. There's research behind it. There are, you know, there are actual controlled studies, but also anecdotal shouldn't be downplayed because our experiences as human beings are just as powerful and important if we are changing our lifestyle and making ourselves better. And so I, I really wanted to look into that. And yeah, so, okay. So it is um, interesting, isn't it? How, how it all plays out. Um, and I, I guess people are confused because of this. And if we go back to the initial question where when do we start getting healthier? When should we start and really look after our health? One of the problems is that we've been always taught if, it, if you don't feel wrong, if you, don't, if you don't see it, it's not there. So if you don't feel like you're dying, you're fine. And that's not really it because our, our bodies are resilient, but that doesn't mean we're healthy. Um, until, so in that case, uh, because people need to be having more awareness about the health status, what do you recommend people do in terms of um, perhaps diagnostics? So checking blood test and seeing a doctor, what, what do you think that their approach should be to know they actually are healthy before disease develops? Yeah. Well, I think probably the, the easiest and simplest uh, thing to do would to be uh, just get, a, get, a, get your lipid profile, your cholesterol and its, and its uh, derivatives would be one thing to do. If you're really worried about whether you have heart disease or not, a uh, calcium score uh, which is a simply a CT X-ray of your chest uh, is 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 a, is, a, is available, and that's you know you you kind of have to ask yourself what are the tests that every year those who are in rural Okinawa 
are getting, or in rural China, or in uh, Central Africa. Are they getting their cholesterol drawn every, no, they never have heart disease, right? And one of the reasons that medicine is so, is so expensive in this country, right now, for example, in Medicare, which is you know the largest government agency for expensing care to the uh, to its elder citizens, forty six percent of Medicare is cardiology, and you ask yourself, what is cardiology? Is it it's stents, it's drugs, it's bypass, expensive diagnostic studies, none of which would have to be in evidence. Think of what would happen if the government saved trillions of dollars through these unnecessary tests. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> our, our research, our money, anything is going the wrong way. It, and what if we educated people about health? I mean, we've seen this in the pandemic. Nobody talked about, not one single government talked about nutrition and exercise. None of them. You know? So... It makes you really wonder. Um, and uh, you talked about uh, the blue zone, so Okinawa a few times and uh, rural China. Um, does looking at these population populations, does it demystify the, set, the, the thought that maybe cardiovascular disease is genetic? No, I think that uh, the idea that cardiovascular disease is uh, genetic uh, is kind of absurd when you look at what happens to people from those nations where cardiovascular disease is virtually non-existent. What do you think happens to them when they move to this country and they start eating the Western diet? They get sick. They now have the Western disease. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Of, that's true of cancer, and it's true of heart disease. I guess it makes sense because what we learn from what we get from our parents, other than genes, um, it's habits, right? We learn from them how to eat. We learn from them uh, how to cook or not. <laughs> Many people don't know how to cook, sadly. Um, so it's uh, the habits are more important. Lifestyle is much more important, perhaps, than the genetic profile. And not I'm not downplaying the fact that we have predispositions, but epigenetic has shown that even though we have predispositions to something, we can always not switch any of those genes off. And then in some cases, it's not genes at all. It's, uh, as we said, it's a uh, lifestyle. Like when you have people that come from places where there is no disease and then they arrive into um, America or Europe and voila, now they have to rush to the doctor. Are, are you afraid that um, because of the way that the world is moving with the influence of... Uh, the U.S., Europe, our our culture and our habits are taking over our places that before never had access to so much meat and McDonald's. Do you fear that these blue zones will be um, we are ex are getting extincted? That's a that's a difficult question to answer. It all depends upon how uh, how intrusive and how vulnerable they are to their offspring and their relatives who leave the blue zone. And then they decide, and they learn the Western ways. And then they decide to come back and they carry those new uh, dietary problems with them. Then, then, there, then there would be an issue. But actually, um, as far as plant-based being talked, that being talked about 34 years ago when I started was very, very rare. And now we have some organizations where there literally are thousands of doctors who are members of the Plantrician Society. There may be five to 8,000 in the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. So I think it's, uh, it's coming around. Mm. Take a while, but it's coming around. That's very good news. That's very good news. Um, what do you think about um, diets such as keto, paleo, and um, I know what you think in like, you know, I, I know what you think in the, in the start, but yeah, when, when you have to talk about people saying they work and people are feeling better, what, what is your thought about that? Uh, I, I have, no, well, if you, <laughs> you register all the 
uh, all the problems, but it, it increases cancer, it increases vascular disease. Uh, it's a disaster. Nobody has ever taken a, a group of patients seriously ill with heart disease and give them a keto diet. There's no long-term study on that. And it's all eating like paleo, they're eating meat. And that and meat immediately opens up a whole, a whole Pandora's box of problems. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Um, I'm asking because obviously there is a big debate um, on, um, and I know social media is not always the platform to look for these things, but people look at them. And so, and even when I studied nutrition, I remember some classmates being very much into uh, eating a paleo diet or a keto diet. And to me, it really didn't make sense. And I know now we have vegan keto diets or plant-based keto diets. Um, but we are talking again, high fat. And if you understand how the body really works, where our energy comes from, if we are meant to get our energy from glucose, from carbohydrates, why are we shoving so much fat into our body to then transform it into glucose to use it? It's like really not a very smart way. Have you ever heard of TMAO? Yeah. Well, that was work by Stanley Hazen at our clinic where he took persons who were omnivores who were eating a whole list of animal foods mm. and that those foods contain the molecules of lecithin and carnitine and he found out that omnivores when they eat those foods they possess in their gut in their microbiome they possess bacteria that when they metabolize lecithin and carnitine the end product is tma trimethylamine, which is rapidly oxidized in your liver to trimethylamine oxide. Now, the interesting thing is that trimethylamine oxide will injure your blood vessels. But when Stanley Hazen took somebody who was totally plant-based, fed them a lamb chop, measured their blood for TMAO, zero, none. Why? Because persons who are totally plant-based do not possess the bacteria in their gut, in their microbiome, that has the capacity to convert lecithin and carnitine to TMA. Yeah, yeah. So, so that, and yet paleo and keto, loaded with meat and fat, and of course, loaded with TMAO. Yeah, in fact, it's true. Although, and I must say, I'm always like, when we talk about paleo, I'm like, well, I'm quite sure that paleo in the Paleolithic area, area, did people didn't really have access to meat every like meal. So even then, I think they're doing it wrong because um, it would probably be mostly plant based, you know. Um, so that's an interesting angle to look at. Perhaps um, they're doing it wrong. Yep. Well, if you were if you were a pristine uh, island in the Pacific, hundreds of years ago, eating vegetables and fruit which is a very healthy diet, there was no problem. But I can recall one of those islands, Micronesia, narrow. They were doing beautifully until suddenly somebody discovered that they had the richest deposit of phosphate from all these birds for thousands and thousands of years. So in, suddenly in comes the cargo ships, in comes the backhoes, the steam shovels, and they start excavating this phosphate and everybody seemed to suddenly become a millionaire. <laughs> and millionaires in Micronesia are going to eat like they do in the West. They have meat five times a day. And suddenly rocketing up went sky, sky high, went to heart attacks and diabetes, took over the island. Mm. Yeah. No, that, that is proof right there. You don't even have to control. It's a controlled study without doing it on purpose, um, changing changing a, a whole culture, you know, a whole, yeah, a whole tribe, basically, and giving them heart disease. Yeah, we haven't been very good with that, um, going to places and uh, bringing our um, bad habits, I must say. It's a little sad to see. Um, I, I grew up, well, I'm, I'm half South African, so... I spent some time in the SA and, um, um, you know, I, I visited some rural areas where people are still eating 
a very wild diet and although they have some ceremonies where they have animal products the majority of their food is coming from roots and fruit and everything that they can um, forage so you can see that they they just don't have um, the kind of diseases that we do and then you see the people that have been moved closer to cities um, and they've incorporated a much more uh, meat-heavy or animal-heavy diets, and they all are overweight um, and, um, and sick. And uh, the, there's a lot of uh, not just transmittable diseases from viruses, and, and that probably is also due to the fact that the immune systems are suffering because they don't get enough good nutrition, but also, uh, you know, we see diabetes and cardiovascular diseases being huge in, uh, in this population. So, and that was never the case before. So I think um, those are something to really be looked at, I, I, I noticed. And uh, this probably was what fascinates me about how we look at nutrition and, um, and how we look at the world. You know, to me, uh, preservation of our health is really an extension of how we preserve our, preserve our planet, um, looking after our planet in a kind way, learning how to work with nature. I truly believe the, the most high has given, is, is given us everything we need in our plants, it's medicine, you know, truly medicine. So uh, that is always something that I love. Um, last words uh, before we close, I know you have, I know you're busy and um, we're coming up to an hour, so I don't want to take too much of your time, but if you had to give an, an inspirational, uh, let's give someone an inspirational um, day, day of eating in the life of Dr. Esselstyn. How do you start your day? What do you eat through the day? So let's get people to, to do the same. <laughs> Well, we have a wonderful breakfast. I usually like to have old-fashioned Quaker oats uh, with a few uh, with a few raisins and, and banana, uh, and then I like to have uh, some uh, flaxseed meal, plus raspberries, blueberries, strawberries, and blackberries, and that's a good breakfast. And then lunch, we always have. Uh, some days it might be a sandwich that would have. Uh, uh, cucumber, or it may and it has sprouts, and it may have a little bit of uh, uh, hummus, and uh, it'll be in uh, whole wheat bread, probably Ezekiel, which does not have any oil. Mm -hmm. uh, supper time, uh, it may be well. Last night it was a, actually it was a beef. Uh, a, a, Beet burger, beets, a beet burger with a whole wheat bun, and again with some sprouts and some arugula uh, on it, and uh, again some hummus. Uh, sometimes uh, for lunch we'll have a, a soup, uh, or it will be a sandwich. And then there's a wonderful variety of uh, all these evening things where a stir fry of some grain over which we'll have a, a, a bunch of wonderful vegetables. And you can do that with, a, with any grain, which makes it kind of exciting. But uh, I think my parting words to your audience would be that I guess I'm terribly optimistic about the future because I see that we could really make a seismic revolution in health. And the seismic revolution in health is never gonna come about with the invention of another pill or another drug, another stent, another bypass. But the seismic revolution will come about when we in the public, when we in the profession have the will and the grit and the determination to share with the public what is the lifestyle and most specifically, what is the nutritional literacy that will empower them as the locus of control to absolutely annihilate chronic illness. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I'm, I love this uh, positive ending because uh, we need it. Dr. Esselstyn, thank you so much for taking the time I will share all of your details on the show notes so people can get in touch and look at your program and buy your book, which is actually amazing. 
and uh, I'm really grateful that you do the work that you do and that um, you are so kind and graceful to share with everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chantel. All the best. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Thank you, Dr. Assassin, and thank you, everyone, for listening to the episode. I hope this really brought you enough information for you to start looking at your health, making sure that you are healthy, not just feeling well right now, but actually healthy long-term. If you want to know more about Dr. Assassin's program, we have all the information in the show notes, so feel free to look it up. And as always, if you like this uh, episode, please like it, share it, rate it, and I will see you next week.